the Beatles had this chant, John, Paul and George, and probably then Stuart and Pete had this chant when things weren't going well, which in their world wasn't very often because mostly it was an upward trajectory, but nonetheless, sometimes you know, they would have a bad night or the gig would, you know, didn't work properly or the amps broke or whatever. I say, where are we going, fellas? And they'd go, to the top, Johnny. And I'd say, where's that, fellas? And they say, to the toppermost of the poppermost. And I'd say, right. And we'd all sort of cheer up. Where are we going, Johnny? Straight to the top, boys. Oh, yeah? Where's that? The toppermost of the toppermost. Welcome to Side B of October 1963. I'm Ed Chen. I'm Kid O'Toole. And I'm Martin Quibell. We're going to skip right into the charts because, well, coming up, we're going to have a perfect Halloween story for you. It is indeed scary. (laughs) It's going to be a real monster mash. And it involves some disguises, doesn't it? Yeah, you could say that. (laughs) So we start the week of October the 5th, 1963. We're doing Cashbox this month because, I mean, as we mentioned the last time we did Cashbox, Billboard is the one that won because it survived, but Cashbox was every bit as important at the time as Billboard. Absolutely. We've got a variety of songs, some interesting, some rather unusual, some great Motown, real variety on uh, this episode. Yeah, but as I've mentioned to you, there's a lot of mediocre stuff in the charts this month as well. Yes, unfortunately, that's true. All right, so we start at number 17 with Dion's Donna the Prima Donna, classic Dion. I met a girl a month ago I thought that she would love me so But in time I realized She had a pair of roving eyes I remember the nights we dated Always acting sophisticated Talking about high society oh, Then she tried to make a fool out of me They call us This is actually one of my favorite Dion songs. Classic sound, kind of a throwback in a way with that doo-wop sound. And I like the lyrics by Dion. I remember the nights we dated, always acting sophisticated, talking about high society. Oh, then she tried to make a fool out of me. They call us Kind of funny. Love the lines. Man, she always wears charms, diamonds, pearls galore. She buys them at the five and ten cent store. This woman that's trying to be upper class, and I love she wants to be just like Zaza Gabor, even though she's the girl next door. That's a great, <laughs> great lines. Great lines. Of course, Dion had such a great, distinctive voice. Glad to see this. This has always been one of my favorites. Of his clever wordplay with a really good doo-wop feel. At number 21, I Can't Stay Mad at You by Skeeter Davis. uh, Poor Skeeter. It sounds awfully poppy. It's moving away from what she was best at. This sounds like something that someone might have given to her. I agree. I much preferred End of the World. That was a stellar record. Nashville sound. We loved Jerry Goffin and Carole King. But this is just kind of a cookie cutter pop record. And she deserved better than that with her voice. What do you think, Martin? I wasn't particularly fond of this song by Skeeter Davis either. I thought it's not bad, but it's not one that I'd come back to listen to. It just sounds of the time, almost girl group pop. It's just a shame because she has such a great voice. Bad Leslie Gore. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Not end of the world. And it even sounds a little bit like breaking up is hard to do in in parts, but not as good. There was a lot of that mid-tempo stuff this month. That's true. Looking at my notes, an attempt to be of the time, but Mm -hmm. losing what was special about her as an artist in the process. 
excellent. Absolutely sums it up. It just really took away what was distinctive about her. You are absolutely right. Okay, at number 23, Part-Time Love by Johnny Taylor. This is classic R&B. was originally a gospel singer, not terribly surprising, you know, a number of blues and R&B artists started out, but he started with the Mighty Clouds of Joy, which is a famous gospel group before moving into secular music. This one is just kind of classic blues progression, but Yeah, there's nothing hugely unique about it. It's a it's a good enough performance. Mm-hmm, exactly. But apparently really found his stride in the 70s. The Rolling Stones were big fans of his. They covered one of his songs in 2016 on their album Blue and Lonesome called Everybody Knows About My Good Thing. All right, at number 24, Nat King Cole is back. That Sunday, that summer. If I had to choose one moment to live with It's typical, it's good Nat King Cole, but it's a little bit syrupy for my taste. You know, I've talked about it before. This is this period that I don't love of Nat King Cole, a little bit more commercial period. But I do like this song. It's very pretty. And Natalie Cole did a great version on her covers album from 91. I think it's the arrangement that's a little syrupy. I think maybe if he had done a more pared down arrangement with his trio, maybe it would have been better. But it's a beautiful melody. And hey, that King Cole, what a voice he had. I mean, he could sing anything. (laughs) No question about his voice. And and he sings it very well. It's just like... The arrangement and yeah, you know, it's not like I want to turn it off, but it's like eh, it makes you a little bit sleepy. <laughs> yeah, and the background singing—I mean, it's kind of that typical arrangement of that period, a little overdone. At number twenty-five, a version that I really, really like. Peter Paul and Mary didn't always do Dylan right, but their version of "Don't Think Twice," it's all right. It's really good. Love the arrangement. Yeah, the the arrangement is pretty. I have to say, I actually like Bob Dylan's version a little better. And that is highly unusual for me. (laughs) This is a lovely version. But I think I like his version a little better in that, you know, it was such a personal song for him. Dylan's has a little more edge to it, for sure. I think that's maybe it. Whereas this one, I mean, it's beautiful. You know, absolutely beautiful. Obviously, their harmonies were peerless. It ain't no use in turning on your light, babe I'm on the dark side of the road Still I wish there was something you would do or say To try and make me change my mind and stay We never did too much talking anyway So don't think twice, it's all I think I like his version because it does have that edge. And as I said, it was such a personal song for him. But this is lovely. You know, no doubt about it. Uh, yeah, I think I like Dylan's better as well, but it's pretty close. So long, honey, baby, where I'm bound, I can't tell. Goodbye is too good a word, baby. So I just say fairly well. I ain't saying you treated me unkind You could have done better, but I don't mind You just kind of wasted my precious time But don't think twice, it's all right 
this is yeah. one of those that you can say stands well against the original. The problem is, when you've got a song that is so personal, even though Bob will never admit that a song is a personal song, you're always going to have a problem that then when somebody else does a version of it, that they haven't got that same emotion that the person who it means something to that wrote it, they won't put the same heart and soul into it in a sense. So there will always be that big difference between them. Yeah, very good point. Yeah, he'd probably never fully admit that it's a personal song. It clearly is. I mean, and the the way he sings it, it sounds incredibly personal with that edge to it. Whereas Peter, Paul, and Mary's, you know, it's beautiful, but it sounds a little more removed. I like the way that their voices work with this, but there's something about the Dylan version that catches the dichotomy in the lyrics because if you listen to the lyrics carefully with this, it's one of my favourite early Dylan songs, actually. He's sort of saying in there, saying, don't think twice, it's all right. As sort of like, almost like, a, ah, you know, d- don't mind, it's, it's okay. But reading between the lines in the other lyrics through it, you know that it isn't. It's just somebody that's putting a mask there to say, yeah, it's all right, I don't mind. But really, believe it all, it's building up that mm-hmm. thing in the person. But you don't get it as much in the vocal delivery of the three of them, Peter, Paul and Mary. But you do get it in Dylan's very stark, very worldly vocal version. Nicely put. I think that's it. And I am not, to be completely honest, a huge fan of Bob Dylan's voice. In certain cases, and Don't Think Joyce is All Right is one of them, it really fits to have that. Because, yeah... You can tell, very well put, Martin, that on the one hand, he's trying to pass it off. I'm fine. I'm moving on. But it's clearly not. You know, (laughs) he's clearly angry. All right. At number 38, Treat My Baby Good by Bobby Darren. It's another one of those mid-tempo songs. They just kind of show up again and again this month. And this is not one of his best. I think he's trying to emulate the Brill Building sound and trying to capitalize on the Latin sound. Treat her the way she'd like to say that you should. Treat my baby good. Just make sure every day that you treat her the way she'd like to say that you should. Trying to sound trendy. I just don't think it really works that well. I mean, it just, he's trying to sound modern and, and it, it just, you know, it doesn't fit him. To me, he's best when he's sounding a little retro and, and just sounding like himself and just didn't work for me. I mean, it's kind of like the Skeeter Davis thing. Yeah, exactly. Is it just me that got the, the orchestration in the background? It's almost like listening to a Western. I was listening to it, and and I put in my notes that I kept expecting a gunshot sound effect a bit like Legend of Xanadu, only that Legend (laughs) of Xanadu is a better song. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. And also, Bobby, it's Treat My Baby Well. Back to school for you, Bobby. (laughs) That's right. No excuse for poor grammar. (laughs) All right. At number 56, yet another one of these mid-tempo songs. It's like... Thankfully, we're going to get to one in a minute here, which lifts us out of that. This is I Want to Stay Here by Stephen Eadie. That's kind of a massacre of a Goff and King song. And I love Goff and King songs, but yeah, there are few on this charts, not among their best. <laughs> I, well, I, I don't think this is a song that's bad, although, you know, someone could do a at least pretty good version of it. It's Stephen Eadie. Doesn't fit them. <laughs> it really doesn't fit them. I don't want to go for a walk with you. And now that I am in this trance, I don't even know if I'll talk to you. I just want to stay here and love you. It's like it's trying to appeal to teenagers, but Steve and Edie weren't teenagers. And I didn't know until we started doing this show that they did so much material, and particularly Steve Lawrence, trying to appeal to a younger audience. I mean, I just never thought of them as doing stuff like this. 
I mean, I really didn't. I feel like the song is like still trying to appeal to more mature audiences and that the bridge has that string-laden, lush arrangement, but mm. it's still pretty poppy. I thought it was fascinating that a married couple was singing a song that was written by a married couple. Oh. My other half, Louise, said it's the very definition of easy listening. Yes. <laughs> they were kind of known as easy listening. Not quite jazz. You know, they were kind pop. of associate members of the Rat Pack. Yeah, exactly. Not like this stuff. I mean, I never thought of them doing this kind of stuff. So this has been a real shock for me. At number 66, I, I, I. <laughs> New Mexican Rose by the Four Seasons. My comment here is, more cultural appropriation than Speedy Gonzalez. Yes. This, <laughs> how unfortunate. This song would never fly today. Well, I mean, I mean, you know, the Beach Boys, 10 Little Indians, it's like <laughs> the charts were a different place in 1963. Yeah, different time. This was pretty shocking. The Si Senor, it was in the terrible Spanish accent. Oh, the way Frankie Valley was singing Mexico, you know, Mexico, oh, you know, oh my gosh, this was just really unfortunate all the way through. Now, Cashbox described the song at the time as a cha-cha paced song that is filled with the vocal and instrumental tricks that the kids love. <laughs> Why is it the Mexican Rose from New Mexico? Yeah, that doesn't make sense. I mean, the Four Seasons, come on! This was a real misstep. The flip of it is not much better, which we'll get to. Oh, no, we'll get to that it's later. not. No. <laughs> Holy cow. Oh, but yes, we'll damn. get to that one. But yeah, all right, this... we, we okay. Oh, you want to? I'm done. I'm ready to wash the taste of the last couple <laughs> songs out of my mouth. <laughs> At number sixty-seven, I've got a tequila on each way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> workout Stevie Workout by Stevie Wonder, which admittedly is not one of Stevie's best. No, it definitely isn't, and I'm very comfortable saying that. I think Stevie would agree. Um, well, this was an example of how Motown really didn't know what to do with Stevie for a good long while. He's coming off of Fingertips, number one song, and you would think Motown would come up with a great follow-up, right? No, they come up with this. It's more gospel-influenced, obviously, and it was supposed to be a single from an entire album of gospel-influenced, up-tempo, semi-instrumental harmonica songs, sort of emulating fingertips, yeah. but more on the gospel side. Why would you do that? <laughs> I mean, it doesn't even really sound like fingertips. You know, why did they think this would be commercial? It really is strange. And it just barely made the top 30, ultimately. And it did make the top 10 on the R&B charts. This is just an example of how Motown struggled after fingertips to figure out what to do with them. I mean, they had him recording standards. They had him trying to imitate Ray Charles. He was kind of in the wilderness for a while on Motown until they finally got him with some new songwriters and then recorded Uptight. So there's um, actually a Stevie song that I like a little bit better than you do, huh? I don't think it's a terrible song. It's very listenable. And I mean, it's the energetic Stevie Wonder after all. But oh, sure. It's just not great. It doesn't no. really go anywhere. No, exactly. It doesn't it's, go anywhere. It's the same thing all the way through. It's it's just taking advantage of fingertips to me with the chromatic harmonica there. It's almost like a producer's gone, oh, to the musicians, who do a really good job of the music, I'll give them that. But oh, it's course, the same pattern yeah. throughout. There's no change or variation in the backing at all. It's the definition of getting a blues guitarist in and just sort of go into them, just go and play along with this and make it up as you go along. And the same thing yeah. here with Stevie. To me, it sounds like it's just, we've got the Funk Brothers in the background just doing all their thing. 
just play whatever you like on the harmonica and we'll throw it on a 45. It's like they're sort of trying to recapture fingertips, you know, yeah. the magic of fingertips, and it just doesn't really work. And as I said, it's just an example of how for a while, like Motown just didn't know what to do with this kid, obviously a prodigy. And they were trying to make him into something else and almost viewed him as kind of a novelty act for a while. And they finally got it together after a couple of years, but it took a while. A sequel, which is definitely not as good. No, for sure. All right. At number 81, comeback by Johnny Mathis. And there's nothing I can do till you... Come back to me Oh, nothing takes away the hurt When I think of you Saying you were leaving me For somebody new But if you find he doesn't love you Love you faithfully I want you to know you got some place to go Come back typical Johnny Mathis vocal. To me, it was kind of a fairly average pop song, although interestingly, one of its writers was Paul Vance. He's written over 300 uh, songs that were recorded, including Itsy Bitsy Teeny Weeny Yellow Polka Dot Bikini, (laughs) Catch a Falling Star, and a song we've talked about before that Johnny Mathis recorded, a a very successful one, What Will Mary Say?, So, you know, he certainly has a great track record, but I didn't love this one. Although, boy, Johnny sings this with gusto. Boy, does he throw himself into this. Uh, And as I think we've mentioned, Johnny did run across the Beatles at the uh, Melody Maker Awards in 1966. And Dusty Springfield was also there. And wasn't Scylla also there as well? We've discussed this uh, on previous shows, so go be on the lookout for it. Yes, indeed. All right, sit right back and you'll hear a tale. (laughs) We've got two things which are part of the next two songs. At number 83, Little Eve and Annie by Joe Parkins. Well, I got a girl named Annie, and she's mine, oh mine. But when she gets excited, she has an awful time. And at number 85, Eve and Annie. They sound the same, but not quite. This is clearly playing on Hoot Nanny by the Ardells, written by Jerry Reed. I will let Kit handle the first part, and I will take the lead on the second. All right, folks, you are about to learn, maybe new to you, maybe not, a new word called efing. <laughs> All right? Efing, it has various spellings. E-E, it's sometimes E-E-E-F-I-N-G, sometimes E-E-P-H-I-N-G, however you want to spell it. It has been described as the hillbilly equivalent of the hip-hop beatboxing vocal style. It's kind of a hiccuping rhythmic wheeze. That's how it's described. And it dates back over 100 years, believe it or not. started in rural Tennessee. Just like beatboxing where somebody is imitating the sound of drum machines with their mouths, the original efers of the 1800s imitated hogs and turkeys living in their backyards with their mouths and hiccuping and that sort of thing. And so it actually first came to the music world. It appealed to Sam Phillips, the Sam Phillips, the Memphis producer, who recorded Swamp Root as one of his first singles in the 50s. Didn't catch on, so that was that. But for some reason, in 1963, it made a comeback with a song by Joe Perkins called Little Ethan Annie. Obviously a play on Little Orphan Annie. Of course, yep. And it features 
the vocal skills of a man named Jimmy Riddle, who is acknowledged as the master of the genre. And this song propelled both Perkins and Efing into the Billboard charts. And Riddle would go on to be one of the stars of Hee Haw, which I'm sure many of you remember, long-running show, began in 1969, and Jimmy Riddle was one of the regulars on there. He was part of what was called an Ethan and Hambonen Act. So that is Ethan. And we and, mentioned Roy Clark, who was a, a big part of uh, the hee-haw scene. Yep, and Buck Owens, of and course. Buck Owens, the, the, the one and only Buck Owens. One and only Buck Owens, exactly. They were the co-hosts, and so, but Jimmy Riddle, I mean, I watched a little bit of hee-haw for some reason. My father really liked it, <laughs> and so I remember watching it, like, in the late 70s and maybe early 80s. I don't remember Jimmy Riddle at all on there, so maybe he was only on there. A in, year or two, yeah. A year or two, but when I heard the e-thing, oh yeah, I think I've heard this style before i mean when you hear it you kind of know you've heard this before i certainly never knew it was called anything so there, <laughs> there was definitely an attempt to make this a trend alvin and the chipmunks did uh, an efing song efing alvin or alvin efing i forget which order it goes in and i'll tell you folks <sighs> you haven't lived until you've heard alvin efing you have not lived. There on the stage was the latest rage, even out his little heart. We thought the other man had a crowd in his hand, so we heard Alvin start. And the song at number 85 was from a Florida band called the Ardells and playing off a of Hootenanny, it's Ethan Annie. No surfing. And no surfing, that's right, Martin. Ethan Hootenanny surfing. <laughs> Tango. <laughs> With a Bossa twist. Bossa Nova. <laughs> Bossa Nova, that's right. <laughs> now, if you think mm. that is taking advantage, the Ardells. Well, you'll notice we've been a little bit light on Beatle references so far in this show. Well, you're going to get a mother of a Beatles reference now. Hold on to your hats, folks. <laughs> Sit yourselves in, down. <laughs> in January of 1964... As I Want to Hold Your Hand was rising the charts. You know, it got to number one. The leader of the Ardells decided, hey, these guys look like they're going to be popular at least for the next six months or so. We're going to call ourselves the American Beatles. B-double-E-T-L-E-S. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, they would start growing their hair. They would pick up the suits. And they would actually start writing songs sort of in the style of Lennon and McCartney. There's a couple of their originals you can find on YouTube. They sound like some of the better versions of those things you would find on the knockoff records. But this band, the American Beatles, played in Miami, in their home in Miami, at Bob Yori's Miami Club. And, well, as we all know, in February of 1964... The real Beatles were in town. That's what you'd think, but apparently they found out about what was going on at Bob Yori's club and went down and decided to check out these American Beatles. (laughs) (laughs) All right. May I have your first names, please? Dave. Dave. Tom. Don. Vic. Bill. Bill. Apparently there wasn't that big of an issue. And they're not a bad band, by the way. No, no, they were that when, yeah, you sent that link and all. Yeah, they're not bad. So Ringo and either Paul or George apparently got up to dance a little bit to the American Beatles. <laughs> Granted, the Beatles were on vacation and probably ever so slightly inebriated at this point. <laughs> oh, that's cool, you know. Ought to have been there that night. <laughs> you are doing. Uh, I guess what a lot of people would like to do, let their hair grow long and play the Beatles stuff and so forth. How does this strike you? Did did you ever meet these fellas? We met them in Miami. What happened? Did you have an all-out war? Did they receive you well? Were you going to see them or vice versa? No, they were coming to see us. We were playing a club in uh, Miami and they came in. What was their reaction to seeing you? Well, it was very... uh, Were they friendly? Yes, they were. In fact, uh, Ringo and uh, Paul had got up to dance to our music and it, it made us feel rather, you know... 
the Beatles were dancing to the Beatles music? They really, really just stole the whole Beatles look and act. Mm-hmm. And their drummer even looked a little bit like Ringo. Mm -hmm. As much as any other Ringo in in a Beatle band these days. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of like the first tribute band. (laughs) In a way, they got at least enough recognition that later that year at the same club, an impresario, so they had their own Brian Epstein as well, named Rudy Duclos came up to them. He said, hey, I'm from Argentina, and I'd like to book you guys on a tour of South America. As the American Beatles now, I would imagine this has caused you to uh, travel a good deal, has it not? Uh, yes. In fact, we're going to uh, South America July 4th for 11 weeks. Should be very exciting. There's only one issue, and I, I wonder if he told the band this or not. He was booking them as, quote, the Beatles, unquote. <laughs> not the American Beatles. Now, he was apparently using the double E, but as expected, or the folks that were booking this band... You know, they weren't quite sure what was going on. Maybe it's a typo. I don't know. But there was actually press coverage saying the Beatles are coming to Argentina. Whoops. Wow. (laughs) Apparently, that gave them enough juice that they managed to get on American Bandstand with Dick Clark. (laughs) Yeah. You you really uh, uh, have to go on YouTube and look up that clip because Dick Clark, the interview is insane. Dick Clark spends half the interview asking them about how long it took to grow their hair out to resemble the Beatles. I mean, like, half the interview. Now, is that your real hair? How long did it take? And is your hair naturally straight? And what do people say when they see you with that long hair? Like, will you get off the hair thing? I mean, can't you ask them other questions? Really strange. The primary question, is this your own, all of your regular type hair? This, we're growing it, yes. It isn't a wig. Then. No. How, lo- how long has this been going on? How long have you had the long hair? Uh, well, we've only had the long hair about four months now, but uh, we started it about six months ago as more or less a joke thing, and it turned out very well. How long does it take for hair to get to this length? Approximately four or five months. you have any difficulty in keeping it that way? No, we just let it hang. What, what, what happens when you... Now, you have real straight hair. Is it just, just droop that way normally? You set it or anything? No, but I have nightly pinups. So it won't smell well. <laughs> what happens when you walk into a restaurant? Do people turn around and look? They usually just laugh. Do they, uh, do they have any remarks to make? Well, usually the older people make the remarks, you know. But it doesn't affect us, really. We just... Let it go. Now, remember, this is late June of 1964. So the Beatles, we'd seen a little bit of them on television. They'd been on Ed Sullivan. The Washington, D.C. film had gone around, but really people kind of didn't know what the Beatles looked like yet. Hard Day's Night wasn't part of the scene yet. Yeah, true. Maybe that's why, but it's just, it's this crazy interview. It just kind of amazes me that they went so far as to actually get on bandstand. Yeah. That interview sounds almost like a Saturday Night Live skit, even though it's real. (laughs) That is so true. (laughs) Although they they do a version of School Days and find the long version where you get the musical performance. Again, it's not the Beatles, but it's not bad. Not bad. It's as good as some of the competition from the other Liverpool bands. Mm-hmm. If, if Saturday Night Live had done it, they might have done a follow-up skit, which would have been, do you want the Beatles or the Beatles? <laughs> <laughs> and then you'd have the guy coming out doing the what's up with that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now we go down to Argentina. They book this tour. They're on the road. And while the real Paul McCartney is getting ready to go down to South America, we got to mention that in 1964, July the 4th and thereabouts, the American Beatles were on their way to Argentina. There's a quote in the press on this. 
Carlos Santino was a child in 1964. I remember the moment when they announced that the Beatles would come to Argentina because of my cousin. She was going nuts. <laughs> they really, really thought that this was actually the Beatles coming down. Oh, were they in for a surprise? <laughs> <laughs> there were actually two television stations that were after the American Beatles. Channel 13 and Channel 9 in Argentina. They booked them for the same night. But Channel 9 actually had the contract. Mm -hmm. So when they landed, Channel 13 had the ties with the local authorities. You know, pay off a couple people and, well, you never know what's going to happen. On the other side, Channel 9 bought in some wrestlers. (laughs) Titans in the ring to try and uh, get back their boys. Mm, I can see this going somewhere interesting. (laughs) <laughs> Bill Andy tells BBC Culture that when we got off the plane they took us to a TV station where our drummer was kidnapped by a different station and they went through a whole thing to get him back something straight out of hell <laughs> wow where's Ringo oh the other TV station has him <laughs> oh let's go get him from the other TV station <laughs> So we don't know exactly how it got resolved. Probably a little bit more cash, but the four American Beatles did eventually find their way to Channel 9. And they went on the air, and we have their whole performance on YouTube. Wow. It's kind of interesting that the way it's reported is that people were somewhere between indignation and laughter. But you look at the clip, it's certainly not Beatlemania, real Beatlemania, but they're clapping along and they seem to be into it now. Granted, they're in a TV studio and there's the lights and you have the MC, but they're not booing or laughing at them. Wow, so we've gone from Efing to the American Beatles uh, to a sort of kidnapping... Incident. You just never know where we're going to go on this show. There were some people who were having fun. Like I say, you look at the clip, it's about 20 minutes, and you know the audience is, for the most part, kind of okay with it. Now, I mean, they may well have been indignant after they left the studio, but at least during the time they were in the studio, they were clapping along. And, and again, the American Beatles play a cover of Mean Woman Blues. They play Twist and Shout, which is the only time it's like, yeah, that's not really so good. To emphasize just where they're at, they end it with La Bamba. Oh, wow. Again, very much in the twist and shout style. Not a medley. They do play them as two separate songs. Others were waiting for the real Beatles, and they felt defrauded. I mean, I could see that. Yeah, I would think. So the tour continued, and they ended up in Spain years before John Lennon did for How I Won the War. And Franco pumped up a false episode of propaganda against the American Beatles. He came up with this whole story about how they were hooligans and how they had caused there to be riots in the streets. And it's like, none of that ever happened. And it's the American Beatles. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. As the story ends, once they finally got back to the States, nobody wanted to listen to either a band B-E-E-T-L-E-S and... The British invasion had well and full taken hold, so nobody wanted to listen to a band with the word American in their name. I mean, even Jay and the Americans had their troubles during this period. So they would then rename themselves yet again as Razor's Edge. Oh, wow. <laughs> and Efing was over, so they couldn't go back they to They couldn't that. go back to the Efing, yeah. I wonder if they went back to that Miami club. Yeah, maybe. They Who were trying knows? to sharpen up their act. Yeah. Oh, sharpen up the rack. But up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, a song at number 94, which the American Beatles were actually probably better than. <laughs> that, 
that's the way it goes by the four seasons. The flip of New Mexican Rose. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Again, as I described it, you take all the four seasons elements, you put them in a blender, and you hit puree. <laughs> oh, and it kills me because, again, you know, the four seasons are great. But wow. When I started listening to this, <laughs> Inky Valley started that weird effect in his voice. I mean, I'm not just talking about the falsetto. I mean, we're used to that. But when he started on that's that's the only way it did that weird growl on his voice and no 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 and I mean I thought is this a parody? <laughs> couldn't believe it i mean i thought this is a joke right the only saving grace to me is there's a little tack piano solo in the middle and i kind of like that it kind of adds to the insanity of the song but i mean i just thought how could they have released this i can't fathom how this happened martin what's your take on this i hate this song (laughs) (laughs) i love the four seasons of a lot of the time but this song i just did not like it i suppose Mm -hmm. the piano in the middle fine i don't know what it is about the song it's i'm wondering if they dropped a tone it might have been less painful on the ears and it's another It Doesn't Go Anywhere song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It just kind of wanders around for a while. It's like, oh, well, am I going to go right or am I going to go left? No, I'm going to go yeah. straight forward about three paces. And- yeah. I mean, they could, they could have just renamed it. That's the way it goes on for about two and a half minutes longer than it should. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, who told Frankie that that effect with his voice sounded good? I mean, who told him that? I, oh, I just couldn't believe it. All right, at number 96, a song that we know pretty well. I'm leaving it up to you by Dale and Grace, although a lot of people know it more from the Donnie and Marie cover. Yeah, sadly, that's probably the version that people our age and all are are more familiar with. And I am delighted to bring up, too, that this is kind of another Swamp Pop song, that beat that it has that rhythm, that's a Swamp Pop beat. So this is also considered another Swamp Pop classic. I'm leaving it all up to you. You decide what you're going to do. Dottie Marie stuck pretty close to the original. It's a famous, famous song. You gotta um, say brother and sister singing, it's just a little bit weird. It's a little weird. Yeah, you have to kind of forget that. <laughs> but it was a big, big hit at the time. Interestingly, it was number one when John F. Kennedy was assassinated, and they were actually in Dallas on the day of the murder. They were scheduled to perform that night as part of Dick Clark's Caravan of Stars, along with Bobby Rydell, Jimmy Clanton, and uh, Brian Highland, And they were waving to the president's motorcade from a vantage point near their hotel moments before the assassination occurred. And needless to say, the Caravan of Stars concert was canceled that night in Dallas. But yeah, I've always liked this song. I mean, it's just kind of a classic country sound, not twangy. And as I said, it has that swamp poppy kind of sound as well. Yeah, except for the vocal. Yeah, it's not that you rip my heart out in a thousand places and, you know, that kind of thing. But the beat is... Very similar, yes. All right, so we move on to the second week, the week of October 12th. Little Deuce Coop by the Beach Boys is at number 37. At number 79, First Day Back at School by Paul and Paula. (sighs) More of that mid-tempo stuff. On those crazy kids, you know, going to school, (laughs) meaning going steady. 
and then they're going to get married. Oh, so sweet. Yep. Another <laughs> cutesy song from this duo who are supposed to be going back to school, but look like they're about ready to go back down the mine, actually. They both look in the 30s. <laughs> I know. If you wear this ring for me, then we'll go steadily. At number 80, the flip from Johnny Mathis, your teenage dreams, not much better. Mm-mm. In some ways, it sounds like a typical Johnny Mathis song, you know, the romantic, string-laden arrangement, the backing singers, but it's no misty or chances are. And that over-the-top ending, too. Then as your years Not among his best. I mean, Johnny gives it his all, as always, but doesn't have the sophistication of Miss Sear, chances are. I am very sorry, Ken Michaels, but this sounds like mid to late 1950s. It's dated, but (laughs) at the same time, if it was in the mid-1950s to late 50s, it might have been perfect for maybe a couple sat down getting friendly. (laughs) (laughs) yeah sorry ken it is dated johnny mathis is better than this song i hate to say it at number 82 walking proud by steve lawrence another goffin king song when the record first comes on i actually thought this is kind of interesting there's a really nice guitar at the beginning of it and then well steve lawrence starts singing (laughs) <laughs> oh. yeah the guitar was interesting i mean i i agree i mean, you just thought oh okay you know we've been hearing a lot of pop and so yeah you hear the electric guitar come in like oh okay you know this could be something different but yeah it's just nothing special i'm walking proud got my head held just doesn't really go anywhere and you know it's definitely trying to sound of the time it's got a very danceable beat the lyrics are not very special apologies to goffin and king fans i love goffin and king the lyrics are good none of these goffin and king songs are that bad they're not horrible the, the performances don't do them any favors it's a song that's about how proud the guy is that is with the girl that he's with because she's so beautiful and i put in my notes it's all about the girl as it should be. Damn straight. Thank you, Martin. And I believe your mom had a comment on this song. Her comment was, well, that's a throwaway. (laughs) (laughs) And is Steve double-tracked himself there? Possible. All right, at number 85, Monkey Shine by Bill Black's Combo. We love Bill Black, Mm -hmm. uh, his association with Elvis, and, of course, Beatles references. We have to throw another one in there. As we all know, Paul McCartney owns the Bill Black bass. Yes, indeed. Uh, Linda gave it to him as a birthday present, uh, managed to track it down. He was like in a shed somewhere. Can you believe that? We were in Nashville, 
And we knew this guy who knew Bill's mm -hmm. family and Bill had passed away by then. And his bass was kind of rotten away in a barn. The Elvis bass with the little white trim. Yeah, and the, you got The that. real one. And she gave it to me for a birthday present. Oh, Man. I just started playing it a little bit, actually. You know, now he said he can't play it very well because, you know, he's an electric bass guy. He's not a stand-up bassist, but, the, you know, he can play it a bit. He, he um, can do Heartbreak Hotel on it. Yeah, exactly. But he also, can try. I mean, hey, yeah, he can try. <laughs> but also, hey, it's Bill Black's bass. I don't blame him. Who cares if he can play it or not? I'd want it, too. As far as this song, it's a very 50s-sounding song. I like it. I like it, too. also just a treat to hear them alone you know without elvis yeah it's a standard bluesy progression i also thought it was recorded very well yes i would agree particularly for that time I and mean, not that it's an ancient time or anything but really good quality i was impressed by that i could hear the blues brothers band doing this it's that sort mm -hmm. of tune that you'd have in the background i'd think in the blues brothers film you know it just shows what great musicians they were and really just giving you a great idea of how great they were their skills at number 89 reach out for me by lou johnson a, a burt Bacharach, hal david composition dion warwick would record the more famous version but this was the original you know it's kind of a shame because he ended up really being overshadowed by dion warwick actually was working with Burt Bacharach and Hell David before they ended up pairing up with her and, and she ended up you know being more of their muse because he had a great voice really an interpreter kind of a singer and actually I was glad that Martin turned us on to the flip side of this song which is a northern soul classic Martin why don't you talk a little bit about that the flip side that's called Magic Potion it ended up being really popular in the UK where there's a music scene called uh, Northern Soul, which Edwin Starr is part of and other, other artists as well. And it just became one of those songs that was played a lot in the discos for people to dance to. It has got that really good Northern Soul feel to it, I, I think. I tried a million magic charms, but I can't get her in my arms. So please, oh please, help me. Gypsy, won't you make a magic potion? Your time for love and devotion. I'm thinking of magic potion number nine. To use your phrase, I actually called it a banger of a tune. It is a banger. <laughs> it's a great recording, yes. It really it's is. It's probably better than the A-side. I think it is, yeah. because I hate to say it, because as good a singer as he is, I kind of like Dionne Warwick's version better. It doesn't vary too much. From this one, I just like her interpretation a little better. But it may yeah, be the, the same backing, or if it isn't, it's very, very close. Yeah, I agree. I think Magic Potion may be a little better uh, than this. But and I think the flip uh, side actually did chart in the UK as well. I think it got to number twelve or something in the UK. Maybe we'll see it when we get there. Yeah, maybe. I hope so. It's really, really good. But yeah, unfortunately, Lou Johnson ended up being kind of overshadowed in, in the U.S. anyway by Dionne Warwick because he was a good singer. 
There's, there's something weird, though, about the two different ones. So, I mean, the Lou Johnson version of the A-side, Reach Out For Me, I listen to it and you can hear him giving it his all. But when you listen to Dion Warwick, there's something about Dion's when she performs uh, Baccarat David songs that it almost sounds simple when she sings the, their songs because she's so effortless when she sings it. With other singers, you can see that they're having to push themselves to their limits almost in some ways to get these songs out. But to her, it's weird. It is like that. Like, it's nothing to her. She just does the songs. And it's almost like they were meant to be work together, Baccarat David, with uh, with Dion. Absolutely. I completely agree. I mean, she uniquely could interpret their songs like nobody else. And and I, and it's true. She made it look so easy, you know, with the weird chord changes, the time signatures. I mean, yeah, because they are hard to sing. And, and she just somehow knew how to do it. Other singers, you could tell they were pushing. The Scylla and Alfie story. Yep, that's a perfect example. So it'd still have a couple more hits for the next couple of years. One of the problems with this recording was that the record label went under while this yeah. was being in the charts, so there was no pushing of the song, so it didn't get very far, as far as I know. It, it would have a decent career, because late 60s and the 70s, it'd be with Atlantic Records, Mm-hmm. And it'd be frequently working with Alan Tucson and Jerry Wexler. That's right. Yeah. So he wasn't like a you know massive star, but he was kind of a singer singer, I think. Yeah, All right. Really. At number ninety seven, Two Sides to Every Story by Etta James. Not a classic from her, but a good solid song. It's not one of my favorites by her, but she could sing the phone book and make it sound great. That sass she has in her vocals. I mean, just she was a peerless, peerless singer. At number 98, Don't Wait Too Long by Tony Bennett. I would say the same thing about this song from Tony Bennett. It's a good song. The arrangement is pretty good. Tony's vocals are tremendous. But it's only kind of middling in Tony Bennett's catalog. Your song's beginning while mine has been sung. Don't wait too long. Fall is a lovely time. is near and the leaves start tumbling down it's not one of my favorites by him it's not the good life but the way he sings it oh my gosh i mean you hang on every word that he sings once again a master class in singing interestingly he recorded this for, of course, this first one, uh, and it would ended up being released on the album The Many Moods of Tony in 1964, but he would actually record it again in 2014 for the first album he did with Lady Gaga. And he recorded it as a solo. He didn't record it as a duet with her, but on uh, Cheek to Cheek. So he clearly had affection for don't wait too long yeah it's not one of my favorites but it's just another example and then there were other songs he did where i wasn't crazy about the song itself and if anybody else did it i think it would be not much but when he does it he really elevates it i like the later version more it's almost like his voice has grown into the song in a sense yeah he sounds a little young here yeah i think the age that he has in the 2014 version it adds to it. It's almost like some of Paul McCartney's songs, some of them, I think, aged Paul McCartney works better in some ways with Here Today than young Paul McCartney because you've got that world weariness that fits the lyric more. 
Good point. I agree. I think as Tony Bennett grew older, I think his voice in many ways got better, and particularly for certain songs. I think you're right. All right. Well, looks like this is going to be something new for us. We're doing a third side because we can't let this go on too long. We don't want to make you sit in your car for another hour. We'll be back with the rest of the month of October on the American charts. See you next time. Take care. There was a piece in the NME, a news piece, that said the Top Rank Records, remember when Top Rank had a record label? Yeah, they introduced an LP series next week that will be called Toppermost. And it's coinciding with their current advertising slogan, Toppermost of the Poppermost. Yes, I thought, they got it from somewhere. They saw that, they must have seen that in either the NME or Record Mirror or Disc, Record and Show Mirror as it was then. And they've taken it from there. They've obviously thought, how stupid that is. How stupid is is one of those phrases that someone, an older person who doesn't understand teenagers, comes up with a slogan that they think is going to be the hip slogan of the month. Toppermost of the poppermost.